You're listening to Episode 2 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the story of the Blue Beetle. The Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and joining me this time is Tim Wallace from the Cord Industries blog. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thank you very much for being part of this episode. <laughs> Absolutely. How could I miss a Blue Beetle episode? How could you indeed? That's why I asked you to be here. So. so today, Tim and I are going to be talking about Secret Origins Issue 2, which, as Tim just said, features the story of the Blue Beetle. Actually, two Blue Beetles. But before we get into this issue, or why I asked him specifically to be my guest on this episode, I want to explain for new listeners exactly what this book is. Secret Origins was a DC comic series that ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990. The title also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 issues with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. But if you were hoping for any of them to tell the origin of Wonder Woman, you're looking at the wrong comic. <laughs> so. so, Tim answer for my listeners, why are you the perfect guest to be talking about a Blue Beetle story? Well, I, I, I sat down once after being a fan of the Fire and Water podcast, uh, Firestorm fan, Aquaman Shrine, and said, I could do this. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, think, I think a lot of people have, have felt that. Yourself included, yeah. yeah. They make it look um, easy. They make it look easy. They they really do, and it's it's not as easy as they make it look. But my 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 friends, my close friends, would probably tell you that Aquaman was my favorite hero, and they wouldn't be too far off from the truth. But there was already a pretty decent blog covering Aquaman, so I went for my number two, which was which was Blue Beetle, and this issue actually has a lot to do with uh, why he's one of my favorites. Awesome! That's that's terrific. Love to hear that. Yeah, I settled on Black Canary, who was about my thirteenth pick when I <laughs> when I started that blog. Although since then, just by embracing all of her stories, I have come to like her and appreciate her much more. So. You know, it, that's actually kind of funny because, and we can talk more after the recap. Mm -hmm. But but my love of Blue Beetle started with this issue and really with Ted Cord because he was the one that was being printed at the time, uh, right off. Uh, Right off a of crisis was the uh, Blue Beetle solo series with Lenwein and Paris Cullens. Yep. Um, Blue Beetle was in Justice League International, so you saw lots of Ted Cord. But Dan Garrett, aside from one one or two flashback and and an evil robot doppelganger um, <laughs> in the Len in the Lenwein series, uh, there wasn't a lot of Dan Garrett for me to get my hands on. And it, it wasn't until a lot more recently that I really started to to dig into the uh, Golden Age version. Wow. So. There is a, a lot to learn and a lot to love about about even the characters that may be our thirteenth or fourteenth favorite. <laughs> there you go. Um, and speaking of the the Golden Age version, let's get into the history of the Blue Beetle and explain sort of how he came from his earliest appearances in the nineteen thirties to this comic here that was published in nineteen eighty six. Sure, um, Fox Fox Features Syndicate, uh, run by Mister Fox, oddly enough. Um, 
was getting into the uh, the pulp hero business around the same time as characters like uh, the Shadow and the Green Hornet were were popular. Uh, in fact, Blue Beetle, Golden Age Blue Beetle's first appearance in Mystery Men number one from 1939 is really just a blue colored Green Hornet. Uh, down to the fedora and the face mask. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, Good thing nobody was... else ever ripped off the Green Hornet. <laughs> exactly. But it wasn't too long after that that they uh, they did put him in a, a more familiar outfit. Um, yellow gloves, blue chainmail suit, uh, kind of maybe ripping off uh, Captain America. I'd have to double check the dates. Or the Phantom. Um, I always thought there was something the... similar to the Phantom. <laughs> Yes, yes. Actually, the the Phantom would have been my one of my other options for uh, for blog content. Um, <laughs> that's another favorite. But um, Blue Beetle turned out to be such a big hit for Fox. Uh, at one point, they had him in three different books. He was appearing in Mystery Men. He appeared in his own solo title, Blue Beetle, and even in a, a third title called The Big Three. So they got a, a lot of mileage out of that character. But eventually, uh, Fox kind of went under. The character was picked up uh, in the early uh, 1950s or mid-50s, about 1954, uh, by Charlton Comics, um, who oddly enough took the adventures of a Golden Age foot patrol police officer and published it in uh, Space Adventure Comics. (laughs) Um, Exactly where I would have put it if I was in charge of Charlton. (laughs) Right, right. Um, But they they did that for a few issues and then started writing their own uh, new content using the Golden Age character, and then kind of put him to rest. Charlton, if anyone's familiar with their history, they, they kind of came and went in waves, and honestly, uh, the quality was sometimes questionable. <laughs> Between the paper and the uh, the typesetting, um, even some of the art, the stories were great, but some of it was uh, a little iffy. Um, but they went ahead and, and kind of put uh, the Golden Age character to rest, and then uh, dusted the name off uh, in 1964, uh, Dick Giordano, editing for Charlton, putting together their action hero line that included Captain Atom, Blue Beetle, uh, The Question, Peacemaker, um, Judo Master, gosh, so many of them. But they, uh, Charlton at this point wised up a little bit and decided uh, if they wanted to copyright the character, they had to make some changes, added an extra T to Dan Garrett's last name. Uh, changed him from a cop to an archaeologist, and uh, jumped on the Silver Age bandwagon uh, by giving him a rotating array of superpowers that uh, whatever they needed to fit fit the story, he had it. Uh, Flight, vision, energy blasts, you name it. Yeah, it's interesting that when you think of how this came about during the Silver Age with Giordano sort of looking at what he saw from DC and Marvel – Exactly. In in how he their approach to the new Blue Beetle and making him an archaeologist with this somewhat supernatural power set is very much a Golden Age style origin story. Like that that approach is pretty similar to characters like Hawkman and Doctor Fate. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually a a Golden Age character that was a contemporary of Blue Beetle. Uh, called the Scarab, that was an archaeologist who got his powers from finding a mystic uh, Egyptian artifact. So it's <laughs> not sure they really thought through the whole uh, copyright issue, but <laughs> it worked. So then this takes us to the later 1960s when a pretty famous and talented artist decided to take a shot at Blue Beetle. Yeah, uh, Steve Ditko, uh, I think it was 1967, mm-hmm. um, Ditko, uh, I believe coming off of uh, Spider-Man for Marvel, started working uh, for Charlton, uh, doing backup stories in Captain Atom. At that point, they decided to go ahead and update Blue Beetle once again, um, and we were given the gift of Ted Cord. Nice. Most of those stories were written by uh, Gary Friedrich. Uh, and drawn by Steve Ditko, uh, started as the Captain Adam backup, and then spun into his own uh, solo issue, uh, solo stories, solo title uh, appearances in Charlton Bullseye, until you know Charlton started to go under. Uh, I think the next company to pick up the rights was uh, AmeriComics, and AmeriComics published about three Blue Beetle stories in uh, between I think 1983 and 84. 
Um, not the greatest stuff. They kind of tried to, uh, to retcon the history of the character, especially the, the, the two Dan Garretts, the police officer and the archaeologist, by having him be some sort of reincarnation a la Hawkman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they, uh, that didn't last long because uh, DC bought up the rights to the Charlton characters and uh, started introducing them uh, during Crisis. Blue Beetle was, was right there on the pages of Crisis and then spun out into his own series. Uh, Justice League International, and, uh, and the rest, they say, is history. Yeah, right, exactly. And it was Dick Giordano, who was the editor at Charlton, was instrumental in bringing them over to D.C. because he had then moved on to D.C. And right. right around the time he was getting promoted to vice president, he was saying, you know what, there's all these characters just sitting there that Charlton used to have. we got in the option here. Let's pick them up and bring them over to D.C. And all of those Charlton characters made their DC premiere in Crisis on Infinite Earths, right? I, be- I believe so, yeah. I know Blue Beetle, uh, I think Blue Beetle got a little bit more uh, page time than uh, than like Peacemaker, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even more than Captain Atom. But yeah, they, that was when they, uh, they officially became part of the DCU. Awesome. And then right around that, right after Crisis on Infinite Earths, Roy Thomas launched the Secret Origins comic, which brings us up to Secret Origins issue two. This issue is cover dated May 1986, actually would have been on sale on February 13th of 1986. Uh, The cover is by Gil Kane and Ricardo Villagran. Am I probably not pronouncing that right? Villagran? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, What do you think of this cover, Tim? I, you know what? I actually I, I flip flop on Gil Kane. I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, I know he's a, a comics legend. Um, there's sometimes where I love him, and sometimes where I'm not so fond of him. Uh, but this this cover actually I dig. Uh, I dig the the scarab in the background, uh, the bug flying in the sky, even if it looks a little cartoony. And I really like that shot of you know Dan kind of giving the salute and Ted leaping out to the uh, to the reader. Yeah, I usually I'm usually a fan of Gil Kane. I would say that there's more Gil Kane art that I like than there is that I don't. And in general, he, Gil Kane does the interior art on this book too. And there are some beautiful pages inside this book, and we'll get to those later. Um, and there's a couple splash pages that I think would have been better covers. I don't dislike this cover, but I don't know if it's the yellow background or something it just feels i think fitting them inside the scarab outline just makes the characters look a little bit smaller than they need to be i don't i don't know if that's it or something else that you know i I could i could uh i could understand that argument um and actually now that you say that the uh the first splash page the title page probably would have made a better cover (laughs) yeah (laughs) well let's get into the issue then and Tim, are you good with uh, recapping the first half of this story? Absolutely. Secret Origins, Part 2, Part 1, or Issue 2, Part 1, The Astonishing Secrets of the Men Who Are the Blue Beetle, uh, Echoes of Future Past. Uh, stories, uh, Both stories written by Len Wein, uh, illustrated by Gil Kane. Julie Schwartz uh, as the editor, of course. Everybody loves Julie. Um, Woo, Julie! <laughs> So, uh, so this was this hit. This issue hit right as I was starting to collect comics, um, and it had ended up having a huge influence on me. Um, that little starburst blurb at the top corner of the first page, because you demanded it, um, that really hit me. I, I I was just starting to buy comics. I didn't know if I demanded anything, and I at that point certainly hadn't heard of Blue Beetle. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I hadn't heard of Blue Beetle, but but I figured I figured if Superman was in issue one and Blue Beetle was now in issue two, Blue Beetle's a pretty big player in the game. And I wasn't exactly right, but I, I'm still glad I uh, I picked the issue up. Yep. Secret Origins two is really uh, a retelling of, or or this portion rather is uh, really a retelling of Charlton Comics uh, Blue Beetle number one, which was titled The Giant Who Was Not Dead, a giant mummy who was not dead, which is a a bit of a mouthful. But basically, 
what we get is Dan Garrett, professor, archaeologist, and as you read the story, a little bit of a badass, um, heading off to Egypt in search of a lost tomb. Uh, before he leaves, though, we're all ch- also introduced to one of his students, Ted Cord. Uh, Ted's a pretty bright guy, majoring in electronics, but taking Professor Garrett's history class because he figures you could never be too smart. Um, Garrett ends up heading off to Egypt and in no time at all finds him uh, finds himself at dinner with a lady archaeologist and ends up getting into a fight with a dictator. So, like I said before, kind of a badass. Once he gets back to the dig site, they uncover the tomb of the pharaoh Ka F. Ray, uh, whose sarcophagus is guarded by, quote, an ancient azure scarab, like some sort of blue beetle. Uh, once Dan touches it, he finds himself face to face with uh, the ghost of a pharaoh or a god. It's, it's really not clear. It's never been clear to me, not in the DC version or the Charlton version. But he finds himself face-to-face with this being uh, who suddenly declares that he, Dan, uh, must use the scarab to rid the world of evil with the power of the Blue Beetle. Uh, Meanwhile, the dictator uh, is preparing to bomb the tomb, reasons I I don't really follow. But uh, Dan actually manages to see this with his special supervision just by holding the scarab in his hand. Uh, The being then lets him know the magic words... Kajida, which he must say to release the power and the costume of Blue Beetle, uh, which he does and proceeds to save the day. The bomb does explode and somehow Power Rangers style uh, animates and enlarges the mummy of Ka F. Ray, which Dan takes out with relative ease uh, before smashing the dictator's plane and breaking the lady's heart. Uh, he actually says to her, I'm afraid there can no longer be an us, pretty lady. I have a sacred mission now. So uh, he's kind of like Bogey in Casablanca, I guess, uh, <laughs> d- deciding he can't be tied down and it's best if he fights evil as a bachelor. So uh, it- it's a pretty accurate retelling of the uh, Charlton Blue Beetle number one, a little bit shorter, but uh, the art definitely a step up <laughs> from that original story. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. No, no, no. Keep going. Oh no, I'm I'm, oh, I'm done. Right. I I I nailed that summary. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Um, Kurt Mitchell, who did a ton of research and indexing for Roy Thomas in the All Star Companion series. Uh, this guy, mm-hmm. Kurt Mitchell, claims that a blue beetle was a 1930s slang term for a police car. So that has nothing Ooh. that has nothing to do with the story, but it was just a little bit of info that I found out. Um, you know, I, I haven't I haven't heard that, but I do frequently find uh hits on eBay for uh Volkswagens when I search Blue Beetle. You get little little matchbox Volkswagens. <laughs> nice. <laughs> In the first page with Dan Garrett and Ted Cord when we meet them, there's a youthful kind of energy and enthusiasm about Ted that kind of reminds me of Rick Jones or Snapper Carr. Like he seems like it seems like he's being set up to be the teen sidekick um, or like the teenage pal. And even though the story does not go in that direction at all, that was definitely the vibe I was getting from their first encounter. I could see that. In, in fact, that, that first page, um, fourth panel, that almost looks exactly like a Snapper Carr pose to me. Yeah. With, with, with Ted with his hand out like he's just finished snapping the fingers. Yeah. <laughs> That is that that little piece there, though, with Ted uh, meeting Dan Garrett at school, is not part of the original Blue Beetle number one. It's actually something that was retconned in later. Okay, yeah, I, I, I figured that since Cord didn't wasn't didn't come around until later. But yeah. right, I like when Dan Garrett is taking Doctor Hashida around. Um, he's wearing a tuxedo with a white jacket. Uh, reminds me of another famous archaeologist uh, from the Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which would have come out a year or two before this, maybe? Yes. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, I like like that Dan Garrett is a man of action before he becomes a superhero. Uh, This is is a type of character trait that I think was mostly lost – after the Marvel Age, sort of in the around the Bronze Age, the the intellectual man of action, 
Um, and we see that here in Dan, and we see it later in, in Ted Core 2. Um, these guys who are clearly scientists, they're at the top of their game, the top of their field, but they're also willing to throw down and, and get into a fight if they need to. It's mm-hmm. it, it feels like a very outdated and old-fashioned type of leading man hero. And we don't get that much uh, much now. Like we've got the power nerd, and we've got you know the guy who's sort of ashamed to use his intellect or ashamed to use his brawn. And it's right. I don't know. It, it was just it was refreshing going back into the story and seeing that. It's like yeah, this was this was the kind of hero that Stanley envisioned for Mister Fantastic, and it's somewhere along the way he just became the science geek. And now, like with the Fantastic Four movie coming out, I think they're Fox is seeming very apologetic about that character, and they're trying to change him. And but but that's taken us down a different road. <laughs> no, you do have a point, though. It's, it's a lot of the heroes now are the uh, the damaged hero, right? The, the hero, the hero of circumstance. They they never they never wanted to be a hero. It, it was thrust upon them reluctantly, and. Uh, and yeah, you're right. Dan, Dan's the Dan's the archaeologist, the Indiana Jones, the the bogey in Casablanca, um, who's who's already out there fighting some kind of fight, uh, and and gets lucky. <laughs> <laughs> now that's not to say he isn't damaged because he does pick a fight with a military general in a foreign country. <laughs> now I'm not sure exactly how Egyptian laws differentiated from U.S. laws at this point in history, but I think assaulting a foreign leader, this military general, who was described as a renegade. But, he, but he's standing up for the little guy. The, 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 uh, the general was bossing around the, uh, the waiting staff or whatever at the, <laughs> at the restaurant, and Dan was coming into his rescue. So that could have ended his career quickly. <laughs> if it if it got back to the university, I'm sure you know he would have been reprimanded. <laughs> I really, really like the original Blue Beetle costume. There's something so classically iconic about it, and we kind of talked about it. How it seems it's very it's reminiscent of Captain America and the Phantom, but there's just something about that look. It kind of, it, it strikes me on a primordial level that it's just, yeah, there, there's something as, as I get older, I fall more and more deeply in love with the golden age heroes and how ah, just something about their looks. Just, they just, it's, it's, it's something very simple, but, but very powerful at the same time. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still not completely sold on the red fin on his head. But but I do like the red and blue. I, I really do. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, like, the scales, the sort of chain mail effect that they're going for mm-hmm. on the chest, that shouldn't work, but it does somehow. Yeah. Like, nothing about, you don't look at that costume and say, oh, yeah, beetle. I can see the obvious beetle <laughs> connection. <laughs> but it still, I mean, it still works. Like, in the same way that... You see a guy with a fedora and a mask. Well, he doesn't look like a hornet costume, but you know that's the green hornet. <laughs> um, okay, finally, the splash page at the end of this section that shows Blue Beetle with his rogues gallery. I, I think that is literally every villain he fought <laughs> uh, during the Charlton run. And I don't know any of these characters, but I want to read about all of them. After looking at this page, this is such a good page. I will make sure that I post a picture of this when the when the podcast goes up. Um, there, there's only one little thing that bothers me about this, and I don't know if it's Gil Kane's fault or if it has to do with the inking or the colorist even. But it's the fact that Blue Beetle almost seems too aligned with the villains in the background. It, he's not... He's not separating himself from the pack enough to make it clear that he is the hero and the others are the bad guys. And I wonder if this needed something like the serpent effect that you saw in Who's Who. But I also wouldn't want to sacrifice any of these colors. So, yeah, I just wish there was something else that had been done to this page to, to separate the hero from the villains. 
Yeah, it, it could be something to do with the scale. I mean, he's he's almost the same size as uh, Mr. Thunderbolt uh, in yeah. that upper left corner. Um, but to your point, yeah, you don't want to get rid of the color because the uh, the praying mantis man is is a brilliant green, and, <laughs> and I wouldn't want to miss that. Or Mr. Crab. <laughs> oh, those those are those are great stories in that in that Silver Age tradition. Almost, almost that uh, that Bob Haney kind of kind of ridiculousness that you just kind of run with it. It take it for what it is and enjoy it. Yes, yes. <laughs> we'll be back right after this short promotional break. Are you a geek looking for love? Do you long to find discussion on that special comic, TV episode, movie, or toy that's just right for you? Then why not try Supermates? the husband and wife geek cast. Chris and Cindy Franklin can match you with that certain something to satisfy your genre-related longings, no matter the subject. Superheroes. But Robin's like, that was really nice of you, Batman. It's like, I had the room loaded with kryptonite. I can turn it on at any moment. <laughs> and here's the thing. It's, you're talking about, now think about this. It's an apartment building owned by Batman. Do you not think that Batman doesn't have their place but Sci-fi. I don't know. You talk about being a sex symbol and stuff like that. I mean, I know a lot of girls thought, you know, William Shatner was it, but I had a, the biggest crush on George Takai. I, 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 I did. <laughs> I thought, you know. Sorry about that. <laughs> Horror. And then when we see the Wolfman for the first time, he's in... I don't know. We don't. A long sleeve shirt, shirt and a dark pair of pants, pants with a belt. With a, with belt. a belt. That's right. <laughs> and his shirt's buttoned up all the way too. Yeah, yeah. And his so, arms. So after he changes into this ferocious beast who can't talk and doesn't seem to be able to think beyond just attacking things, he, he has lots of dexterity. He went through his closet and. Action figures. I actually had all the figures and all the accessories up to a certain point. I really, literally did collect them all, you know. Including Shira. I was going to get to that, but... Nah. Chris and Cindy have found their own happiness through discussions like this. I could be friends with him. I could be down with this version of the ultra-humanoid. You could be friends with the dude who put his brain inside a mutated albino ape. I married you! <laughs> oh. If you're tired of searching for geek love, then sign up with Supermates for free at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes. Continuing our look at the origin of Blue Beetle, now moving into the second part of the story. Years later, Dan Garrett gets a visit from his former student, Ted Cord. Ted appears distraught and tells Dan that he may be responsible for the end of the world. Over coffee, Ted explains how he went to work for his uncle Jarvis, despite his father never trusting the man. Ted's father disappeared during a mysterious expedition, though, and Jarvis was always good to Ted, encouraging his scientific brilliance. The two worked hard to perfect a chemical formula, the purpose of which was never revealed to Ted. 
One night, after he perfects the formula, Ted leaves the lab only to witness it explode behind him. It would appear that Uncle Jarvis died in the fire, but Ted becomes less and less certain of that. In the rubble, he discovers a briefcase that was totally preserved from the blaze because it was coated with the chemicals he worked on. Inside the suitcase, Ted finds a map of Pago Island and a film reel that he shows to Dan Garrett, revealing Jarvis's plan to create super dangerous robots that will now be impervious thanks to the formula Ted helped him find. Not realizing that he's talking to Blue Beetle, Ted enlists Dan's help to find Jarvis's hideout on Pago Island. Once there, they are immediately captured by Jarvis's android robots and brought back to his secret lair. Jarvis reveals his plan to take over the world, then he orders the robots to kill the interlopers. Ted apologizes to his professor for getting him involved, but they're not dead yet. Dan grips the scarab and utters the words Kajida, transforming into the Blue Beetle. With his superpowers, Blue Beetle is able to contend with the deadly robots, but a panicky Jarvis changes their programming to make them even more powerful. The result overloads the robot's circuits, causing a massive explosion in the lab. The blast kills Jarvis, but Blue Beetle covers Ted Cord at the last moment, taking the full brunt of the explosion himself. As Dan Garrett lay dying half-buried under rubble, he asks Ted to carry on his legacy as the Blue Beetle. Ted accepts his mentor's dying request. Then the cave begins to collapse, burying Dan and the Scarab, and forcing Ted to escape alone. Without the Scarab to grant Ted superpowers, he must become a different sort of Blue Beetle, using science and technology to augment his abilities. Over several days, we see him crafting the bug vehicle, training and conditioning his body, building the strobe gun, and designing a flashy new costume. The story ends with the new Blue Beetle swinging over the city, with the spirit of his predecessor watching from above. Ted Cord's adventure would continue in the Blue Beetle ongoing series that kicked off one month after this issue came out. So, you said that this was one of your first, one of your first comics, and this was the sort of issue that got you into Blue Beetle and Ted Cord. What did you think about this origin story for Ted? I remember looking at this thinking, like, I I want some guy to, to, to tell me to be a superhero. I, I really did. The, the whole idea that um, – and I, I've said something like this before, I think, on my on my blog. Ted, Ted is like the everyman, and, and Ted is the hero that you want to go – you want to go out and have a beer with and hang around. He's like the people's Batman. He's, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean – and and by that I mean I mean he's Batman anybody with charm. Could, he's he's Batman with charm but anybody could be Ted Cord anybody yeah. could 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 be that you know science student who who takes on that that legacy and and feels like they you know they have to you know pay that debt um and and do what's right um he just seems like a, like like that genuine guy that like I want to be that guy. I I want I want to put on blue tights and go fight crime. Yeah, yeah. He is the the sort of self made hero that was. Again, I mean, going back to the '60s when the character was created, when Ted Cord was created. I mean, Marvel really sort of changed the game in making heroes who kind of fell ass backwards into their powers a lot of times. Right. Um, so to have that character who makes himself the hero using his knowledge and using hard work and technology builds himself into this is still a very old fashioned concept when this, when the story is coming out. Absolutely. I mean, even, even the golden age blue beetle was, was just a cop who wanted to do a little bit more and threw on the chainmail armor and asked his uh, pharmacist friend to make him <laughs> some super powerful vitamins so he can go out there and fight the good fight. There aren't enough heroes like that either. <laughs> um, the, the superpowered vitamin part, or the <laughs> just, just the, the heroes who go to their their drugstore and just say, "No, nah, you got to hook me up." So, um, you, you got something that can give me a boost. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the beginning of this section, when Ted visits. Dan, and they're a little bit older. The aging is kind of subtle. It's not obvious, but it is definitely there. Um, you see a, a few more wrinkles around Dan's face, and you see Ted's jaw is a little bit stronger. Um, it's not... 
it's it's clear that uh, some time has passed. It's clear that they're a little bit older, but it's not they're not old men. And I I really think I like what Gil Kane did with the art in this page and kind of showing a few years have passed. These are these are men at different points in their life. Yeah, definitely. You know the other the other thing is Dan Garrett's wearing the glasses now. Uh, I'm going to guess because he needs them. Because in the in the first half, he wears the glasses when he's at school, but the entire time he's on his his expedition in Egypt, there's no glasses. So it's almost like the glasses are an affectation at school to make him, you know, I'm the professor. And another and, sort of Indiana Jones similarity that I think. Yeah, and here, you know, Ted shows up ca- and Dan's sitting casually at home, yeah. home with the glasses. He's not showing them off to anybody, so. To, to your point, that's another little sign, the subtle sign of the aging, I guess, that he's now got to wear the glasses. Right, right. Do they ever actually say what happens to Ted Cord's father? Because I realized as I'm reading this, he went off on a mysterious expedition, and the, the implication I got was that Uncle Jarvis may have had something to do with his death, but I don't know. Is that, has that story been told? I don't think so. I don't. I don't believe it comes up at any point during the uh, the Len Wein run. Um, I don't think Chuck Dixon. Uh, Chuck Dixon was writing uh, Blue Beetle as a as a peripheral character in Birds of Prey, right. and I don't believe he ever. I don't believe he he ever fleshed out that part of the story. Um, I'm I'm still digging up some of the Charlton Blue Beetle Ted Cord appearances. But the ones I have read, I don't recall it ever really being detailed there either. It's just that sort of mysterious something happened. That seems that seems like an odd line to just kind of drop there. It's a, it's a little too close to Chekhov's gun. It's like, yeah, my father, <laughs> he, he went off on a mysterious expedition. I never saw him again. It's like, that should probably come back later in the story. Now, there, there might have been – now that I'm thinking about it, there may have been a reference – a reference to it in um, the Batman Brave and the Bold in one of the Blue Beetle episodes. The there, Fall of the Blue Beetle. I I was actually I was going to ask you about that one because I watched that again yesterday and realized how how many similarities there were between that story and this one. Yeah, it it actually covers the uh, what Jaime wanting to know why he uh, he's no Ted Cord. Yeah, exactly. And just wanting to find out <laughs> about the lineage and thinking that he actually meets the older Ted Cord, which. Batman eventually real, reveals is the evil Uncle Jarvis. Right. Um, but yeah, they, they got Pago Island in there. They've got the same plan with the super deadly robot creations <laughs> that are going to take over the world. Yep. That, that episode definitely, you know, drew inspiration from this story and some of the, the, uh, the original Ted Cord adventures. And they just repurposed them for Jaime. Yep. It, it certainly did. When I started getting into comics, and I, I'm a little bit younger, so I didn't really start getting into comics until the late '80s, early '90s, and I was much more of a much more of a Marvel zombie. Uh, but I always tried to get into DC Comics, as Joss Whedon would say, I was a Marvel kid, but I was always DC curious. Um, <laughs> and one of one of the DC characters that I always just found fascinating by a, a purely visual look was the Blue Beetle, which was the Ted Court of that time. And I, tr- I picked up a couple issues of his solo series, and I even got Justice League, uh, not Task Force, but Extreme Justice, thinking that, oh yeah, Blue, Beetle, <laughs> Blue Beetle's in this. This has got to be a good comic. Not so much there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he was a great character. And I remember... I also I came about Secret Origins, this title, in a very sort of piecemeal way. I wasn't collecting this at the time, um, and I got a lot of these issues just at weird points kind of randomly over the decades. And this was one of the first ones that I got, and I just I liked the story because I thought Blue Beetle looked cool. I have no idea what actually happened to that issue. I still have most of my comics, but I lost that one at some point, and I had to rebuy this about a year ago. Um, but yeah, I just... I, I I always dug this comic. I always, even though I never followed Blue Beetle that much because I couldn't get into DC as much, I just, I liked that character. I just, I love this design. Thank you, Steve Ditko, for for crafting this character. Part of it was, part of it was the gun. Like, the, there, there are some visual aesthetic similarities to Spider-Man that people make those comparisons. I kind of see that. 
Um, but I think a lot of it was just images of him holding the gun that was always different. There was something a little bit more science fiction-y than, than, than the other heroes, just because it looked like he had a ray gun. Yeah, the the BB gun. Yeah, his his non lethal uh, non lethal weapon that that alternately uh, flashed a strobe or uh, or shot bursts of air. <laughs> Whatever they needed. <laughs> but it, but it's genius. It's it it was. I mean, it's kind of ahead of its time. The the non lethal approach. The I'm going to I'm going to flash my strobe gun at you to disorient you so I can you know arrest you or or tie you up but but I'm not going to shoot you. I'm not going to wound you. I'm just going to, you know, disorient you. It's kind of a kind of a brilliant move. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I really like this issue from start to finish. It really it does tell two stories almost or the the stories of two different heroes. And I, I, I like them equally. Uh, I mean, as much as a Ted Cord fan as I am, I, I I like the first half more. I like the Dan Garrett section a little bit more. But it's a great issue. It, it, this makes me want to read more Blue Beetle comics, which is exactly what it was supposed to do because <laughs> they launched his title a month after this. Exactly, exactly. And the, and you're right about the Dan Garrett stuff. I I think I said before when I bought this. When I when I first got this, and I'm like, this Blue Beetle guy, he's he's somebody important. And then it it was almost impossible for me at the time to to find any of the old Dan Garrett stories. So aside from you know flashback and evil robot appearances during the Len Wein run, I I had this issue to go on and this image that he was this you know badass, um, badass ladies man. And it wasn't until I actually you know started up the blog and started tracking down some of the, the Dan Garrett Charlton issues and started, you know, doing my recaps of those that I realized he, he is kind of a badass and he's got like a lady in every issue. He's like, he's like the, <laughs> the, the captain Kirk of the Charlton universe. <laughs> well, they needed one. So I'm not, I, I don't know if I can picture the question getting the same type of social life. <laughs> No, no, and I guess I guess Captain Adams at a little bit of a disadvantage too. Yeah, he can he's got it. terrible costumes. <laughs> Tell me more about your history with the character. I mean, we we kind of talked about the history of Blue Beetle up until this point in 1986. Where did the character go after that? After after 86, so he had his his solo run, uh, which was ran about two years. You know, not too shabby. Then went on to uh, a long run in Justice League International, uh, from Justice League International to uh, Extreme Justice. That was that was bad. Um, uh, I, Birds I, of Prey. I still think there were other characters who got it worse in that book than Blue Beetle. But. <laughs> you mean you mean Booster Gold with the uh, with the football pad armor? That <laughs> was that was what I was thinking of. <laughs> Um, so they, so then he, he kind of, it kind of faded out a little bit, um, I guess after extreme justice. Um, but then Chuck Dixon did bring him back in, uh, during birds of prey kind of brought him in as a, a, a potential love interest for Barbara Gordon. There was even the, uh, I've seen it online several times, uh, tracked down the story to an interview with Chuck Dixon where he, he fully acknowledged he, he had originally planned to have, uh, Tim Drake become the new Blue Beetle under Ted Cord's tutelage. Wow, which I, never, I think would have been awesome. I never heard of that. I I had never heard that story, but I can strangely see that. It, it would have been great, right? Yeah. Wow. That's. Yeah that that was a plan that that uh, Dixon had while working on Birds of Prey, and I I can't remember the reason, but editorial shot it down. Um, they had other plans. I think it was actually other plans for Tim Drake at the time. Wasn't he so that writing, was nixed. Wasn't he writing Robin at the same time though? Yeah, but I, I guess I guess somebody at Batman Editorial um, that might actually that might have been when they were bringing in uh, the Stephanie Brown, okay, um, and starting to switch her over to what she went from spoiler to Robin. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I think the decision was to, to 
change up the story and have him stick around in the, uh, I guess the bat verse versus the, uh, the beetle, <laughs> the beetle verse. Um, and then that took us, uh, eventually up to, uh, infinite crisis. And where he... nothing, nothing interesting <laughs> happened to Ted Cord during that story. No, no, nothing at all. Um, just, just, you know, his old friend, Max Lord blowing his brains out. Yeah. I... <laughs> so, yeah. Now, as I, uh, I mentioned earlier, like I, I hadn't been a big DC reader at the time. I love the characters, but I just wasn't following the books. And, you know, it, it was around this time that I started reading Green Lantern and a bunch of the other DC books that, you know, it, it was during the Jeff Johns and Dan DiDio era. era. And I, I remember hearing that they killed Ted Kord, and I, I couldn't believe it. Even though I hadn't been reading Blue Beetle, I just, I loved that Yeah, character. I, there's been a few of those moments where you, you know it's a fictional character, yeah. and, you, and you know that, that, that you know, they, they'll find a way to bring them back sooner or later. Uh, like the death of Superman. I, I had a, an emotional reaction to the death of Superman. And I had the same kind of feeling with, uh, with the death of Ted Cord. It was, it was, it kind of hit me like, uh, like stunned you. Like, wow. Like, did I, did I really just read that? Yeah. It was, and I mean, they, they tried to, they tried to give him that one act of defiance with his last words, but it was still, it was still a pretty senseless whack job that just yeah it just took the character out in a pretty unglamorous way for for what he should have been um, yeah and it and it was the whole the i mean at that point most everyone is is looking at ted as the the ha 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 justice league international lighthearted goofy and then that's it's that that gut punch that yeah. that just kind of Took you back, I guess, or took me back. Maybe, maybe that was when it started. Maybe we all should have realized back then that DC doesn't tell jokes anymore. DC doesn't have any room for <laughs> levity and humor. Well, that's actually wasn't it right around that time that uh, McGuire, DeMatteis, and uh, and uh, Giffen were still doing uh, formerly known as the Justice League. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I think they actually got in. It was right around that time they got in another little gag where. Uh, where Blue Beetle and Max were joking about, you know, I'm going to kill you. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and laugh and laugh. <laughs> Not so funny now. But even though Ted was killed, the Blue Beetle did not go away for very long. Leading into, I guess, inf- Infinite Crisis, um, Ted got his hands on Dan Garrett's Scarab. Um, and was trying to figure out how to unlock the power of Dan Scarab and never quite managed to do it. Uh, but during Infinite Crisis, the Scarab fell into the hands of uh, young Jaime Reyes and uh, attached itself to Jaime's spine and suddenly became uh, not just an Egyptian artifact, but an alien artifact as well. That makes sense. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think if I had been reading the Blue Beetle comics from Fox in the 30s, I would have called it. So yeah, this is, this is totally an alien power. I, I, I always wondered if maybe uh, they if maybe they consulted with Giorgio Sukalos from uh, Ancient Aliens. Here's, a, here's an Egyptian artifact. It must be alien. It must be. There is no other possible explanation. Not if you did three minutes worth of research would you ever find a, another explanation. So. But uh, honestly, I I was not a fan of Jaime. In fact, at that point, I, I mean, I was excited going into Infinite Crisis, knowing that there was a part with Ted Cord. I was I was psyched, you know. Hey, Blue Beetle's back, and then they killed him. And I I swear, I thought he was going to come back. Mm-hmm. Like I thought he'd be. You know, hey, by the end of this uh, this little mini series event, Blue Beetle is going to be back in action and better than ever. And I didn't see uh, I didn't see the Jaime twist at that point. And then when he did come back, I, I resented it. I mean, as a fan, like Ted was my Beetle, and I wanted nothing to do with this new Blue Beetle. Yeah, I can 
I can completely understand that. It's just you're, yeah. I, I, I. If I had been as big and as long term of a fan, I probably would have felt the same way. Now, because again, like I would say, that was kind of when I was getting into DC. I did read a lot of the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle comics, and I generally liked them. I wanted to, I wanted to rebel against them and say no. Ted Cord was the Blue Beetle. Um, but I liked I liked the the Jaime Reyes stuff. It was DC's version of Ultimate Spider-Man, but it was it was fun, and I liked the costume. Um, I, I guess sort of that's one of my takeaways is that I from a, from a visual and character standpoint, I love all three of these Blue Beetles. I love Dan Garrett, I love Ted Cord, and I like Jaime Reyes. I wish they could all be Blue Beetle. It's maybe not necessarily at the same time, but I wish we could get stories of all three of them treated with love and TLC. Was it like the DC Universe holiday special? I actually covered it on the blog a couple of Christmases ago. Um, or one of, I guess is a better way to say it, one of the DC holiday specials did a uh, a Blue Beetle Christmas that actually did include... Dan Garrett, Ted Cord, and Jaime, and it was the uh, the legacy heroes following like this legacy petty criminal. <laughs> so it was it was the grandfather, the father, and the son criminal, and each one of them had encountered one of the, blue the various incarn exactly. Nice. So it was a it was kind of a nice moment to to see, even if just for a few panels, see uh, Dan and Ted back in action. Yeah. Um, have you? This is sort of moving off of the comics topic. Have you? Yeah. Have you watched Arrow? Have you followed that show? Absolutely. So, what is your feeling on the <laughs> Ray Palmer character on that show? That that is that is not any Ray Palmer I have read in the comic book. <laughs> um, actually, actually, you know what? That's not entirely true. The Ray, the Ray and Arrow, Ray Palmer, not not the Ray. Um, <laughs> The Ray Palmer in in Arrow is a little goofy. He's he's very Ted Cord, and I know that was the original intention. Yeah. And apparently, they were told by by DC that we have other plans for the character. That I'm still waiting to see what those other plans are. Diablo Frank um, Diablo Frank told me that Jeff Johns has really aggressively tried to get a Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle show, and nothing's happening with it. But until he gives up on that, I think that is the Blue Beetle that they want to market. So. Well, I, I know a few years ago, Alex Winter, um, Bill S. Preston of Bill and Ted, Ted yeah, yeah. directed a, a short segment of a Jaime Reyes like test reel with a, a, an unknown actor, at least unknown to me, um, going through the Jaime transformation and then flying out of his bedroom. Um, and it looked amazing. Uh, I mean, at this point, I, I have come around to to accepting Jaime and even even kind of enjoying Jaime. And a, a lot of that has to do with the uh, the Blue Beetle appearances on Batman: The Brave and the Bold. Um, yeah. That's what yeah. swayed me. Yeah. That that swayed me and got me to read the actual comics. And then I started to warm up to him. I, I wasn't a big fan of the New Fifty Two version, but uh, no. the the pre Fifty Two. Jaime Reyes was was actually a, a really likable character. Yeah, my favorite Jaime Reyes comics or appearances with him are the Brave and the Bold comics written by Mark Wade with art by George Perez. Um, there's a yes. there's a chapter that's the team up of Batman and Blue Beetle, and it is for all intents and purposes, it's Mark Wade writing Batman and Spider Man teaming up. That's how he writes <laughs> that Blue Beetle, but it's still so funny. I love that chapter. That was that was a good one. But yeah, but like, because they had been talking about, they had been teasing, they had mentioned Ted Cord in in Arrow, they had mentioned Cord Industries, and or they hadn't mentioned him maybe by name, but they'd talked about Cord Industries a couple of times. Um, and as soon as they introduced the Adam and or Ray Palmer, and they showed kind of what kind of character he was, I was like, this was not conceived as Ray Palmer. This was supposed to be Ted Cord. Everything up to exactly everything up to the relationship with Felicity, who is the Arrow version of <laughs> Oracle. She is Barbara Gordon. In fact, I was I was convinced that they were actually that they should have paralyzed her this season, um, <laughs> and it just that would that would 
that would send all of the fans of CW shows in a tizzy. They would lose their minds because all of the characters have to be beautiful and 21 years old. And right. <laughs> but, but I thought, yeah, once they introduced, I was like, okay, this, this, this was clearly supposed to be Ted and it would have been interesting to introduce blue beetle that way. But yeah. And then when the flash pilot did so well, then it was like, well, now we can actually spend some money and give our care, our heroes superpowers and we don't need just another vigilante. True. How, how do you, uh, feel, I guess, is uh, about the Black Canary on Arrow, or the Black Canaries. <laughs> I, at first, I was hesitant. Uh, I, I've talked about this on the Flowers and Fishnets podcast, so I'll give you the short version. Um, the I, I started watching that show for Black Canary. I had no intention of watching the show before that. Um, but when I heard that they were introducing her in the second season, I said, okay, I'll, I'll give this a shot. And the Laurel Lance character was just nowhere near what Black Canary needed to be. So when they said it's a different character, I was okay with that. And when they made it the sister, I really liked the first Black Canary that they introduced, the Sarah Lance one. I really liked her. Um, then they killed her, and of course they're replacing her with Laurel. It's taken me a, <laughs> it's taken me a little bit longer to warm up to Laurel as the Black Canary. Um, but but they're doing okay with it. I, I'm. I'm okay. I'm. I, she's growing on me. I still like Sarah better, um, and I'm happy that they're bringing that actress back for the the new spinoff I think, show. I, I think I agree. I think I think Sarah is was a much better Black Canary. She was different. She was original, but I liked. She had the connection to Ali. She was trained by the League of Assassins. She was a lover of Rachel Ghoul's daughter. There was just so much there, and Laurel's motivation is just. Yeah, her sister was murdered, so she became a vigilante. It's, we've seen that before. We've seen that motivation before. Right. Um, you know, it's it's been a while since I read them, but uh, but the Sarah version almost puts me in mind of um, Black Canary around uh, like the Longbow Hunters era, the Mike Grell, the, the, a little bit grittier. Yeah. Yeah, like certainly, like almost when she kind of like shed the wig and the costume and everything, and she was a little bit more hardcore. Um, uh, anyway, we're kind of drifting off. Yeah, drifting away from the blue beetle top, which usually signals that this is almost time to to wrap up. Okay, Tim, did you have any other sort of final comments about this issue of Secret Origins? Uh, you know what i I would actually say. If if anybody listening ha- hasn't read a Blue Beetle comic before, this is actually a really great jumping on point, and and it's a great point. It's a great jumping on point to get the Dan Garrett story and to get you know the start of the Ted Cord story, because you go from from the Dan Garrett story with with the High Adventure, um, and then you go into the Ted Cord that, that has the drama and and it ends on that sort of like rebirth like what's going to happen next so i think i think this really actually as far as the secret origins go was a great way to introduce the public to the character i completely agree with that even if dc failed to follow through on providing dan garrett stories after this yeah Yeah. (laughs) um other recommended reading other like if you could uh any other blue beetle stories that you would that you would advertise for people or new readers who might like the character if if you want laughs, honestly, any of the Blue Beetle appearances in Justice League International, formerly known as the Justice League, I mm-hmm. still can't believe it's not the Justice League, Justice League 3000, that's a great funny Blue Beetle. Me personally, um, one of my favorite story arcs um, from the Blue Beetle run in the 1980s um, was issues 5, 6, and 7. It was the, Len, the team of Len Wein and Paris Cullens. It was a, a three-part story. Uh, that involved a gang war, a villain called the Muse, who wore like a um, like a Mardi Gras mask, and guest starred the Question. And it was a really cool, cool story to see. You know, these two Charlton uh, heroes, I, I believe, at this point, teaming up for the first time in the DCU. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And those are collected. There's a showcase presents Blue Beetle collection, yeah. and those stories I yep. believe are yeah. in that. They absolutely are. You know, another yeah, – I'll, I'll throw this in there too. Sure. Um, because it took me forever 
to track down the Dan Garrett stuff. So I would be remiss in not mentioning Dan Garrett with this uh, with this story, especially since I covered that part of the recap. The the Charlton Comics Blue Beetle number one, the the giant mummy who was not dead, um, and the final issue, the final issue of Charlton's run um, was issue number fifty four, and it doesn't mean there's fifty four issues in there because they actually ran through like issue number five, dropped the title for a while, brought it back, picking up the numbering from another book. Yeah, yeah. but the the last the last issue was fifty four, and it's a story called the Eye of Horus. Written by Roy Thomas. Actually, Roy Thomas is, uh, I think it's his first uh, official comic credit. Wow. And is the reason why he went on to create characters like the Scarlet Scarab for Marvel and the Silver Scarab uh, in Infinity, Inc. He's actually said that in a few interviews now, that that initial Blue Beetle gig that he got uh, has inspired him to create these other characters. But it's not just that reason. Uh, The Eye of Horus actually is a great bookend to the Dan Garrett stories because it brings back the evil general. It brings back, uh, Lori, the, uh, Egyptian archeologist that Dan, uh, left heartbroken in the desert and ties back into that first issue. So it's a really great bookend for those Dan Garrett stories. Awesome. Have, have those Charlton stories been collected? No, they have not. Um, I, I wish they have, um, I think the the DC archives did collect the action heroes books, but they only collected the Ted Cord stories, not the Dan Garrett stories. All right, Tim, where can fans find you online if they want to learn more about you and more about the Blue Beetle? Uh, they can uh, check out my blog, uh, com, and uh, I'm managing to cover every little bit about Blue Beetle I can find from the Golden Age to the Silver Age to the Bronze Age, all the way up to uh, Jaime Reyes and any of the other uh, new stuff DC throws our way. All right, that sounds awesome. I'm a, I'm a fan of the sites. Again, I love this character. I was so thrilled that you agreed to be part of this episode for the Secret Origins podcast. Hopefully, maybe I can get you back sometime when we cover one of the Legion of Superheroes characters. Oh, the Legion of Superheroes, because I, I am also part of the Legion of Super Bloggers. I, I'm glad you remembered that, because I almost forgot. <laughs> Couldn't have that. <laughs> All right. Well, Tim, once again, thank you very much for being on this episode. I had a great time talking to Blue Beetle. I had a great time talking to you, and I'm sure the listeners will enjoy this. Oh, no, thank you. I'm uh, really glad you asked. And now, for the first time, the listener feedback section of the Secret Origins podcast. I want to thank all of the listeners who helped promote the show after the first episode. Facebook likes came from Aaron Moss, Alan Middleton, Andy Bibacht, probably mispronounced that, I'm sorry Andy, Anthony Durso, Chris Franklin, Chris Ivey, Gene Hendricks, The Hammer Strikes, The Irredeemable Shag, Nathaniel Wayne, Terry Wood, and Tim Wallace, who you probably just heard a few seconds ago. We also got a Facebook share from Neil Daly, who provided the music you hear at the beginning of this podcast. Twitter favorites and retweets about Episode 1 came from Alan Middleton, Ange, Anthony Durso, Between the Pages blog, Boston Brand, Charlton Hero, Eli, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Araujo, Keith Mason, Cord Industries, Kyle Benning, Luke Giaconetti, Out of the Fridge, Seth Deming, Siskoid, Sin, Too Dangerous, and Adam Mr. Chuck Norris 789. That sounds legitimate. I'm sure that's real. We also got some comments on the WordPress page. That's secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com. I'm not going to read the entire comments here, but I encourage all of you to go to the site and check them out. Leave a comment of your own if you'd like. Siskoid made a comment about the Legion of Superheroes and its connection to Earth 2. I barely understood what he was saying in the comment because I just don't know enough about the Legion. All I really know is that because they exist in the far future and they're directly inspired by past characters and events, every time DC had a crisis that changed their timeline, the Legion books had to adjust, which often meant rebooting the franchise. I suspect we'll get into that more when we start covering the origins of some Legionnaires. And there are a handful in this series. 
Anyway, Siskoid also agreed with Chris Franklin about the greatness of the Triangle era of Superman comics. And if you love that era, or if you want to know more about it, I highly recommend checking out the podcast From Crisis to Crisis, hosted by Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. I'm probably preaching to the choir, but just in case you haven't heard their show, it's awesome. Go download it. Tim Wallace... Yes, the same Tim Wallace I was just speaking two minutes ago, commented on the first episode saying, This was a lot of fun. Makes me want to reread more than just my Blue Beetle issue. I hope so, Tim. I'm counting on you to come back and help me cover one of the aforementioned Legion stories. Uh, we got a great comment from Ange that was very complimentary. He also talked about his disdain for Man of Steel and his begrudging purchases of the New 52 books to blog about them. Ange also talked about meeting Jerry Ordway in 2012 and getting Secret Origins number 1 signed by the man. Ange said, I asked him what he thought of the issue. He said he felt honored to ink boring stuff, but he also said it was difficult to do because boring drew with a heavy pencil, such that it was difficult to erase the pencils once the inks were down. Still, he said it was a great time to do the issue, and it shows. This is a love letter to the original. Also got a comment on the Facebook page from Nathaniel Wayne of Council of Geeks, calling it an epic first episode and complimenting us for keeping the conversation relatively focused and interesting despite numerous tangents. Nathaniel also said, Chris was the first person to express his thoughts on Crisis in such a way that I get what fans think they lost due to the event. I still don't know if I agree, but I think I get it now. And finally, the show got its first iTunes review. Five stars from Brother Head, the alias of Aaron Moss, who runs the Head Speaks podcast, and the Task Force X podcast, which chronicles the adventures of the Suicide Squad. Head's review goes, My only complaint is that I can only give it five stars. This was a great podcast. I read the Secret Origins comics as it came out, and this podcast was a joy to listen to. Ryan and his guests show how much love they have for the source material, and it was a pleasure listening to them talk. The only problem is now I have to wait for the next episode to come out. Big thank yous to Brotherhead and all of the listeners who left comments or promoted the show on social media. It really means a whole lot to me and my guests. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you come back next time. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or the username Count Druncula. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. You must think now, take what you need, you think will last. But whatever.